My name is Hayley Jane Sims and you are listening to Your Manchester Stories. As a member of Manchester City Council's executive, Councillor Bev Craig oversees adult services and health and wellbeing. She is a Manchester City Councillor for Burnage, leading on LGBT issues. She's a school governor and a community activist. Bev is an experienced trade union organiser, leading on the coordination of activist development work in the northern UK. She has previously worked in local government specialising in equality, cohesion, youth services and regeneration before moving to the higher education sector. Joining me today is Ben Bone on behalf of Equality, Diversity and Inclusion and the All Out Network at the University. Thank you very much for joining us today. Would we be able to start at the beginning and could you tell us a little bit about where you grew up? Um, Yeah, so I... I grew up eight miles outside of Belfast um, on a council estate that nobody's ever heard of. So it's a place called Green Island. Um, It was, I thought, a very kind of normal, standard place to grow up. Uh, Turns out, kind of when you go into the wider world, not everyone views where you grew up as normal. But to me, it it was home. um, And I came to Manchester in 2003 for uni. So yeah, so so where I'm from, people tend to to stay there. So my mum and dad still live there. My sister lives on the same street. Um, my aunt lives down the road, um, and my other sister lives a couple of streets away. So it's a very kind of static community. So the fact that somebody wanted to leave, you escaped, was quite a big deal. Yeah. Um, what what was it about Manchester that kind of drew you here? So this is a bit, it sounds really glib. So I um, had a bit of a tough time growing up. Um, and didn't necessarily fit in so well where I lived. Um, So I always knew that I wanted to leave. Um, And I was applying for different universities in England. Um, I did law in my first year. So I'd looked at league tables, I'd looked at where was a good idea. I'd applied to Manchester, Nottingham, York, Durham. Um, And ultimately came to Manchester Two reasons, really. One is that I'd always liked Man United. Um, and two, I saw queer as folk in the telly. I thought yep. there was lots of gay people. Do you know what? I did the exact same so, thing. Only, only reason, really. And when you tell this in polite company, it's not really an inspirational story all the time. I said, well, I used to watch queer as folk in my bedroom, dine on the quiet, and there were lots of gay people. So I came to Manchester. I think a lot of people did that. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So, so why politics? Was there any particular... Did you have a passion for politics growing up or just something interested you? So I think it just interested me. So so growing up in Northern Ireland, um, I guess politics politics was really tricky. Um, so I grew up in a very um, traditional Protestant working class area um, that had a very rigid view of politics. Um, I didn't meet anyone um, that wasn't from that community Probably, I mean, meaningfully, until I was about 14, 15, I think we, we once did a cross-community project where I loved dinosaurs, so you got to go and see the dinosaurs, but you had to hold, friend, hold hands with a Catholic, essentially. And that was the only kind of meaningful engagement or even meeting somebody from a different community that I'd had was at the age of nine, held hands with a Catholic so we could look at the dinosaurs. Wow. Um, so when I was 14, probably 14 was when I came out, actually, um, and my view of politics really shifted um, because I had quite a tricky time, as I've said. Um, and in Belfast, the communities that I find most supportive um, were predominantly Catholic, 
um, nationalist community, so Sinn Féin, SDLP, political parties that I'd never thought of could be accepting of someone like me, were much more welcoming and supportive and prepared to talk about our agenda um, than, than anyone else. So, so I think that probably gives me a different view on politics. So, so in, in Northern Ireland, not something that I wanted to be engaged in, but sort of challenged my perceptions around what it means to have political power and to build alliances. So when I came to university, I did law in my first year, um, and I just, it just didn't gel with me. Um, and I'd always liked history. Um, so there was a course that really interested me, which was modern history and politics. So that's what I did um, at university for, for my three years. And I wasn't in a political party at the time. Um, I wasn't politically active in that sense. I was involved in campaigning and equality campaigns, but not in party politics. Um, and I didn't join the Labour Party actually until 2009. So I did my degree, finished my degree, um, went and worked on a, a, a public sector graduate scheme and sort of came at politics a little bit later on. So was there anything about your time at university that kind of shaped your kind of your political journey? Um, I think massively, actually. So, so for me, growing up gay outside of Belfast in a very working class community was quite... A big deal. Um, so coming to Manchester, I think reflecting on it, what was most interesting is by the age of about 18, 19, it wasn't the one thing that defined me in a way that it had been growing up. So actually adjusting to life in Manchester and life at university um, as someone who'd come from essentially a poor working class background was much more of a challenge actually than being gay in a city like Manchester. Um, so that probably shaped my view of the world in a different way um, and probably opened my eyes to um, inequalities in more of an economic sense um, than it had done necessarily in an equality sense before that. Um, and whilst I was at university, I went on to run an international LGBT organisation called IGLIO, um, which is the LGBT youth and student, I suppose, wing of ILGA in a sense, which is the International Lesbian Gay Association. Um, so whilst I was in Manchester, I spent a lot of time out of Manchester um, doing a lot of work with um, particularly Eastern European um, and Middle, East, Middle Eastern countries around LGBT rights and LGBT agendas. Um, and the university is very supportive of that. So, so my, my world massively broadened at university um, in a way that obviously I think has, has shaped me massively. Um, you talked a little bit before mm. earlier on about coming out when you were 14. Um, can you tell us a bit about the story behind that and how life changed for you after you came out at such a young age? Mm. So I I think it'd be fair to say um, had always been spotted by other kids as being quite different before I'd realised myself. So I was that classic tomboy that just wanted to play football and didn't realise why the girls hated me because I got to play football and hug the boys after I scored the girl at primary school. Um, so I was quite oblivious to this for some time. Um, and then when I was at secondary school, um, and obviously it took me a little while to get my head around it, but it seemed quite natural. So I, t I told my best friend at the time, and we were talking about it. And I was just before my 14th birthday. Um, and she was quite religious, so she was quite upset about it. So I just tried to give all these kind of strange analogies about it being natural and all sorts of other things. Um, and a teacher overheard us having that conversation. Um, and then the teacher went on to gossip with other teachers and the students overheard from the teachers. So at the age of 14, I was in a situation where 
I'd been called in by the deputy head to have the conversation um, that being gay is not very fashionable and I need to be very careful. Um, and then my form tutor called my parents in um, to announce to my parents. Um, oh. So this was not long after my 14th birthday. Um, so I was sent home from school for two weeks. Um, the head of my form had suggested that my mum and dad take me to see the doctor. So I was taken to see my GP. Um, and it's really funny, and I, I can't quite repeat what he said to me because there was a lot of swearing. Um, but essentially, my GP is like, why are you here? And I was like, well, this has happened. And he's like, yeah, but why are you here? <laughs> and I was like, don't know, I was told I had to come. Um, so, so he was very good, and he got my mum in, and he was like, this is ridiculous. Like, you can't like, just bring her to the doctors just because she's gay. Like, it, there's nothing wrong with it. Um, but I didn't go back to school for the two weeks because everybody was very upset. Because um, there was lots of crying teenage girls that, you know, they'd shared a PE room with me or oh. I'd been to the house. Um, and I think it really, it was really interesting because at school, as, as things went on, it was at no point really the students that gave me any hassle. It was mostly teachers. Um, and it was teachers from particular um, religious viewpoints um, that, that kind of had those views. And that was probably the bit that surprises people most, that it wasn't my peers, it was the adults that were supposedly there um, to oversee it. So at the same time as this, I think my mum and dad um, struggled quite a bit. Um, so my mum, her first question to a 14-year-old girl was, well, what about children? How are you going to have children? And I'm like, mum, Sarah up the road got pregnant and everyone was outraged. Like, you don't need to ask me about children at the age of 14. <laughs> Um, but, it, you know, it, so it was complicated. There was a complicated few years. And I probably should say, actually, that I get on actually really well now with my mum and dad. Um, but, you know, for a while, um, you know, I, I didn't quite live at home. I stayed in different places. And, and my my granny actually was the most accepting, strangely. Um, and she had, she had this quite funny way of viewing it. She, 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 just, she just said to me, I mean, not very politically correct now, but she said to me, you know, like, how your dad's got diabetes? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, well, he was born with diabetes, wasn't he? And I was like, yep. She's like, well, you were born as you were, and, and there we go. And that's all she ever said about it. Um, you know, and she, she, took, she you know, took me in, spent a lot of my time sort of living with her. But it was probably at that point I realised, actually, this, this isn't really my community. I really don't fit in here. Um, and I started spending a lot more time in Belfast, um, got involved with an LGBT organisation, we'd set up a youth group um, and just met loads of really cool people that I wouldn't otherwise have met. Um, came to university and then, you know, it'd be fair to say that in the years that have passed, I've got a good relationship with my mum and dad and I. I had family that came to my wedding um, and my mum's been to Pride in Belfast. She joined an LGBT and um, parents of LGBT people group um, you know, and I think she recognises that there's there's an element of kind of not just things have moved on, but it, it's almost in a sense her atonement for some of the, the difficult stuff. It's really interesting, especially given what's happening at the moment with schools and the Absolutely. of the um, sex and um, sex education mm. and um, relationships that we're seeing on the news at the moment. Um, so would you? Would you say that you got found your most support by going to Belfast then? And... Yeah, so I, I kind of... School for me wasn't a supportive environment. 
Um, and I think, I, I mean, in some ways, I was lucky to survive school in that sense, but, but I think there was an element of not just stubbornness, but I suppose at that age, I knew that I had to leave. Um, you know, so I did have problems kind of on my estate going home, you know, the kind of my peers um, from where I lived weren't quite as accepting as people at school, um, you know, and it wasn't a safe place for me. So, so I knew that for me, I had to finish school before I could do something else and I could kind of get out in a sense. Um, and in some ways that's shaped me in a different way because actually I've gone on to do loads of stuff in my life that I wouldn't have done had I've just stayed where everybody else stayed. Um, but having kind of LGBT support groups um, that I could go to um, was so important. And I remember actually the first time I contacted them, um, and it's probably the reason why I've stayed so involved with LGBT groups um, in Manchester. Um, but you know, that, that feeling of being sort of 13, about to turn 14, you know, at the time I was a, I'd find the newspaper um, and there was like a gay helpline that you could ring, so ringing from a phone box and ringing like that three times and hanging up every time because a lesbian answered the phone and you'd never spoken to one before. Um, you know, but, but kind of going through the journey of that to then, you know, at kind of 16, 17, leading a protest at Stormont and getting invited in to kind of give a petition and stuff really gave me something that probably I didn't have at home and I didn't have at school. Um, so I think that's why... I've been so keen to support kind of LGBT groups, but also in this, and I won't call it a debate, in this argument that we've been having around sex and relationships, education um, and schools. You know, I've seen that schools aren't always a safe place, um, even with the adults around. So actually there do need to be mechanisms in place. Um, and I used to run um, LGBT Labour nationally, and we were coming up with our 2015 manifesto um, and it was one of the key pledges there for that reason, that we would have um, mandatory with no opt-out um, across the piece. Um, and we have seen some issues in Manchester, but I think we've led on them differently than other places like Birmingham, and we've not let things spill over. Um, and I think we've been really good at getting um, particularly Muslim allies to lead some of that debate. You know, so I've been to primary schools with... Um, fellow councillors, you know, who are leaders in their communities, you know, that are explaining to, you know, communities in Manchester that actually, you know, in their mosque, they wouldn't accept discrimination around anyone else. So why should they accept discrimination around LGBT people? And that probably has been the most powerful, more powerful than me um, as an out gay woman delivering a message to a hundred um, worried, predominantly Muslim parents actually having someone um, respected in their local community and their local mosque giving them the same message I think it's been really important yeah really interesting we've got um, an ally scheme at the university mm. that's um, we, we try to push and we're constantly trying to recruit new allies um, so it's, it's 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 great to hear how that is having such a positive effect elsewhere having LGBT allies yeah and I think the thing with allies is having something for them to do so I think kind of knowing when you can use them and how you use them. And I think because otherwise people say, well, yes, of course, you shouldn't discriminate against LGBT people. But until you kind of give them something practical, you know, and I, th I think it's for some of my colleagues, it's really opened their eyes, actually, um, to the line between what people say and what people mean. 
um, when it comes to, to LGBT issues. So I think it's been quite, you know, it's not to say that it hasn't been fixed and, you know, and that it, there, there isn't still an issue. Um, and I know a lot of the head teachers in our, our local schools have worked really, really hard with parents to make sure that they understand that we've been doing this for years in Manchester. It's not something that's new. It's not something that even though the government are talking about it, um, it's not something that, that will suddenly change in Manchester overnight. And I think having schools that are confident enough to deal with that, I think, has been the most heartening thing. What do you think the, the future holds for LGBT people in, in Manchester? Um, so I, I, th I, th I think I'm never one to be complacent um, because you just have to look at the state of politics mm. uh, nationally and internationally to know that complacency is a, a scary thing. Um, but I mean, since I've been here, I moved here in 2003, as I said, I think, you know, the city has massively changed. And that's not to say that people don't still experience hate crime, hate incidents and prejudice. But I think it is a more inclusive place than it was. So I think it'll continue in that sense. I think for me, there's some real challenges around how, I guess, communities are brought together in a way that looks at people, not just as LGBT people, but the other communities that they come from. Um, you know, so I suppose the academic term would be intersectionality, um, but I think that can be quite an alien term sometimes. But I think until we're able to be confident that, you know, the lives that kind of white middle-class gay people lead are as prejudice-free as the lives that, you know, young working-class black people growing up in areas of Manchester um, are the same and without prejudice. Um, but I also think there's, there's specific policy stuff um, that, you know, we focused a lot on legislative change and social change with a bit of policy thrown in. Um, but we're working really hard in Manchester and Greater Manchester through devolution, actually, to look at what a modern, integrated trans healthcare system would look like. Um, so that's kind of some of the policy stuff that we can do sort of here and now that aren't, you know, isn't saying to trans people, actually, you should go through this really complicated, long-winded process that sees you on a waiting list in Leeds or London. You know, you should be able to access, um, you know, healthcare that actually isn't as specialist as we make out in Greater Manchester. Um, so that's probably one area. Um, and then I think it's just around, I guess it's around kind of being vigilant and reminding people that they need to, you know not lose track of the fact of where we are and that things can change and you just have to be mindful of that you know and I think I think we have started to see a tipping point um around you know what people report so hate incidents and what people will accept you know for years people accepting comments well that's just what you get and I think it's that social point around well actually things don't change until you keep reporting that you've been getting these comments every day so I think there's, there's loads still to do but I think some of it is is quite practical things um, that can be policy-led um, and some of it is just about making sure that, you know, if we worry about the far right and the far right are saying actually, you know, one of one of the debates we've had around kind of far right tactics at the moment is some of the far right saying, well, actually, you should not like this community because they don't like LGBT people. And it's about, I think, sometimes education within our community that, you know, if you have somebody like Tommy Robinson claiming to stand up for you, he's not really standing up mm. for you. There's an agenda in there. Mm. Um, and I think it, it's some of that. And I think the only other thing I'd, I'd say is probably recognising that as LGBT people, we're not a homogenous lump of people that 
just because we could experience discrimination in our lives don't discriminate against anyone else. Um, and I think that's that's a important message as well, that, you know, whilst we're still pushing the cars for LGBT people and we need to be aware of racism, ableism, all, all the other different issues that are prevalent in our community, just like any other community. We touched earlier on a little bit about um, support. Yeah. Um, and But what advice would you give to any current students or um, fellow graduates um, if they were thinking of coming out and what support would you advise that they seek? So I think, you know, obviously I came out quite young and would I have chose to come out at that age? I'm not entirely sure. Ultimately it proved to be a very positive thing for me. Um, and I think you know, the, the first thing I'd say is that there probably there never is a perfect time. You know, there probably isn't a time when, you know, you think, well, I'll wait until it's a good moment with my mum. I'll wait until um, my, you know, housemate says something positive and then I can say something in response. So I think probably reflecting that there isn't a perfect time. And, you know, and it has to be when you're ready um, and when you're ready to be able to deal with that. I think in places like Manchester, you know, with the university, but also all the different support groups in the city, there's so much support out there. You know, I think for me, coming to Manchester, it was about finding people that I could be comfortable with. And that was predominantly LGBT people. But over time, you know, my social circle grew and shifted. Um, you know, so I think finding people you're comfortable with. And also, if you need that extra support, kind of finding out where you can get it from and who you can ask it from. Um, but I think, you know, when I speak to people that have come out, it's not always as big a deal as you think it is. It's probably, you know, for you, it's the most important thing in the world. But for a lot of people around you, you know, the response is often just like, yeah, and. <laughs> also, I mean, you've had such an inspirational journey. Um, with that in mind, is there anybody from the LGBT community who inspired you? So I think there's been loads of people along the way. Um, I think... Growing up, you know, beyond watching Queer as Folk in my bedroom in secret, and there's, I can't remember, it's some awful programme that was on at like 2am in the morning or something on the BBC. Rona Cameron. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, so so I think the fact that we're scraping the barrel here <laughs> is, um, and, and growing up where I did, the only way, so it's a diva magazine. Um, it was a funny thing, it wasn't available in shops. You had to go and find um, the lesbian member of staff that worked in Waterstones in Belfast, because in the um, back room she had some back copies of Diva. Like, can I just say I am only thirty-four? Like, I'm not, you know, <laughs> I'm in my sixties. Like yeah, no, exactly. I mean, but this was Northern Ireland. God love them. Um, so, so role models weren't really a thing, if I'm honest, at that particular age. Um, apart from getting my back copies of Diva kind of on the sly from the woman who only worked Tuesdays and Wednesdays or whatever it was. <laughs> um, but I think, I think for me, kind of some of the most inspirational people, actually, and probably the point at which I tipped from... So I was really involved in Belfast because it was really important to me. And then I came to Manchester and realised that you could just go out and have loads of friends and probably drink more than I would recommend now, but have some fun. Um, and then I went to um, an international conference on behalf of, of a, a Manchester group. Um, and it, ultimately it was this organisation, Iglio, that I went on to chair. And I think the thing that really always stayed with me um, is there was this guy who's got IMAD. And we were in Strasbourg. And whilst we were there, he was from Lebanon. 
Um, and obviously it was legal to be gay in Lebanon. And while we were in Strasbourg, he was outed on the front page of his newspaper. Um, and as a bunch of 18 to 25-year-olds, um, you know, having a conference in the Council of Europe offices, we went through this whole process of, you know, he had to ultimately seek asylum in France where we were having this conference. Um, and at, at that kind of conference, you just met so many different inspirational people. Um, you know, people that were ultimately have gone on to kind of lead the fight against what's happening in Chechnya through the Russian LGBT organisations, people that were avoiding jail all the time. Um, you know, and I, I met a chap called David, um, a Ugandan activist who was ultimately killed a few years back. Um, and I'd met all these people and then I came back to Manchester and that night I'd arranged to meet my friends for dinner in Velvet and we were going to go out drinking and dancing. And for me, it's about meeting people like that that do kind of everyday acts of things that just live in their life as an act of defiance. And then I come back and go out in like a gay restaurant to go to a gay bar to go dancing. So I think it, it's, it's the people that you meet along the way that do stuff that you think, wow, would I have the guts to do that? Um, they're the kind of people that I really kind of draw energy off. Okay, so we're getting to the end. We have one last question okay. for you. Um, if we gave you access to our time machine... Oh, wow. ..and you could go to any time or place within Manchester... Yeah. ..what or where would you go? OK. Oh, this is tricky, cos it kind of challenges my love of Manchester and kind of my knowledge of LGBT history at the same time. Um, so I think one of, one of the most... One of the things that have been on my mind most recently, actually, particularly with all the school stuff... Um, is I would quite like to go back to meet kind of some of the people and the steps that led up to um, Manchester having one of the largest Section 28 campaigning against in the 80s. So I think I've met some of those people. Um, at a time when Thatcher was trying to bring in Section 28, Manchester led the fight. Um, so I think it would either be kind of in the 80s and the run-up to that... Um, or, you know, the, the campaign for homosexual equality was launched in Manchester as well. So I think, I think it would be one of those sort of two periods where, you know, I've met some of those people, but I think, you know, there's, there's so much inspirational history in Manchester. I could say suffragettes, I could say trade unions, I could say whatever. Um, but I think that's probably one of the most kind of recent things that I've been thinking about that actually, you know, those small acts of defiance that kind of shape something, I think, are really important. Thank you very much. No, thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Your Manchester Stories. Please rate, review and subscribe or follow this podcast wherever you listen. If you are a graduate of the University of Manchester, you can connect with us at your.manchester.ac.uk. This podcast is produced by Kate Bradbury and Hayley Jane Sims on behalf of the Division of Development and Alumni Relations at the University of Manchester. The music for this podcast was supplied by Blue Dot Sessions.